So you may have heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely. Ones like EO, Vistage, or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members how much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So here's some cold hard numbers for you. In year one with EO, you're going to spend 4,900 bucks. For Vistage, you're paying $18,810 for your first year. And for YPO, you're shoveling out $7,050 for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than 30 bucks a month compared to those other guys that cost 4,900 bucks, $18,810, and $7,050. So if you're on the fence, join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. The return on my time as an entrepreneur is much better building the product business. What I learned was recruiting is a sales job. Be very selective about who you do business with. Not every customer that wants to pay you is a good customer you should work with. What is exactly Hierology? You said it's in a lot of these car dealerships. And just tell us a little bit more about that, and then we'll touch on your personal story. Sure. Hierology is a talent acquisition and retention platform that's built specifically for distributed enterprises. What that means is we work with companies, manufacturers, and brands that don't own their distribution channel. We're talking about franchise systems and dealer networks. We work with most of the service side of the franchise industry. So you think brands like Anytime Fitness or Goddard Schools are great examples. And then we work with about 1,500 new car franchise dealers in the United States and Canada. Both of those markets for us are ones that we have a leadership position in and are really the only company focused on those markets for what we do. And what were the two markets? Service-based franchise brands okay. and retail automotive. So what would Anytime Fitness do? Because I, I don't know if they're all a little bit different or if it's all similar stuff that you're doing there, Hierology. Well, the franchise industry is really two sides. On one side, you've got the franchisors, and franchisors are the folks that have created the brand and the standards and the service offering. And their job, they're in the business of selling franchises and helping their franchisees succeed. So they're in the business of selling businesses to entrepreneurs and helping those entrepreneurs be successful in the concept. On the other side, you've got franchisees. Franchisees are individuals, could be mom and pop, could be a partnership, could be an actual corporation that buys and operates franchise locations. And the way the industry works is for most corporate owned chains like Starbucks, when it comes to the people side of their business, have 
role-specific centralized human resources and recruiting help. From corporate or regional offices, they provide recruiting support to the field. Well, in the franchise industry, that doesn't exist because the field locations are all independently owned and operated businesses. And it's actually a violation of the labor regulations for the franchisor to help the franchisees with the people side of their business. So you have this big disconnect where you've got a million franchise owners in the United States who are struggling to be good at recruiting and hiring, and they get no support from their brand because it's illegal for them to do so. And so we sit right in the middle of that relationship. We partner with the brand, the brand pushes us into the network, and then we contract individually with the franchisees and give them the tools they need to be successful with recruiting and hiring. And is it just illegal like in certain states or is this a federal thing? No, this is a federal thing. It, listeners who want to know more about this, if you're looking for pain on your day, you can go look on the internet <laughs> and Google co-employment liability or joint employer issues. In an example, a couple of years ago, the National Labor Relations Board issued a landmark ruling that changed the definition of employment. Potentially, that's now been put on hold by a federal appellate judge. But basically what the NLRB said was that in approximately 50 or so McDonald's stores, they got so involved with shift management and employee scheduling that they were deemed a co-employer, a joint employer of those locations. Why is that important? That's important because if I'm the Service Employees International, right, SEIU, and I'm looking to organize or unionize fast food, it is a lot easier for me to do that if all of my franchisees or all of the franchisees' employees are recognized as also employees of McDonald's corporate. Instead of trying to go to McDonald's headquarters and unionize a bunch of white-collar professionals, which is not going to happen, or going off to 18,000 individual franchisees and picking them off 70 employees at a time, and that's not going to happen, I could enjoin the entire class as one single employer, and I could unionize the entire system. And that's a death sentence for the franchise business model. So it's a really, really big deal on a national level. And that is why we've had so much success doing this because these owners need help, but the brands can't provide it. That's why there's an issue. It's a little wonky, but it's a massive problem and a really big market. Why is it a death sentence for franchisees? Let's say you're going to go into business for yourself. Like most franchisees, you've had a career in corporate America, you've made some money, you've got a 401k. Let's say you've got a quarter of a million dollars saved up in your 401k. You and your spouse decide you're going to buy ABC restaurant and operate that as a way to build for retirement. So you quit your corporate job and you put your quarter of a million dollars into this new restaurant. Now you put this quarter of a million dollars into this new restaurant because you're going to be your own boss. You're going to buy into a system and you're gonna have the benefit of a recognizable brand, but you're going into business for yourself. It's gonna be Bob Smith Restaurant Incorporated, a franchisee of McDonald's or something like that. So you go into business for yourself. If the NLRB ruling sees it through and permeates the industry, what effectively that means is that the franchisor has to set all of the wage and hour rules. So why in the world would I go into business for myself into a business model where I have no control over my labor costs, which by the way, are the single largest costs in my business. So there's no way I would buy into a franchise concept if wage and hour rules are set by someone other than me. 
so what's my business really worth then? And so for them, the, the million or so franchise locations in the United States that are now subject to these new rules, what's their business worth? They now can't set wage and hour laws or regulations in their own business. And it's a mess. Franchising exists because it distributes the risk. You have individuals who buy into the concept because they're going to own it and build that asset. If they don't have control over that asset, it puts into question why anyone would do it in the first place. There's a longer answer. It's a really big issue. So are you an attorney? I am not at all. Thank God. <laughs> Sounds like it could be just based on, you know, talking about this. Well, so here's the thing. I have had to become an expert on vicarious liability and co-employment legal issues in the franchise industry because it's the single largest issue our customers face. I did not start off building this business because I saw that this was an issue. I started off building this business because I had sold the franchisees before back in a previous job and I knew the market. And I thought they needed some help with hiring and recruiting. And two years into our tenure, selling Hireology in the market in 2014, this landmark ruling comes down from the National Labor Relations Board as it relates to McDonald's and changed the whole dynamic of the market. And I remember actually what had this landmark ruling actually came down two days before we were closing a $10 million institutional investment from Bain Capital Ventures in August of 2014. And I'll never forget this. Our partner from Bain called me when this ruling hit and he asked me a very simple question. Are you still going to be in business six months from now? Because the ruling basically said franchisors can't get involved in hiring. That was the, you know, the simple synopsis. And you were doing the exact same thing that you're doing now, right? We were, but I didn't know. And that was my answer to him was, I don't know. Give me 24 hours. And I spent the next 24 hours sleepless and very, very nervous because our deal was supposed to close in 48 hours. You know, this is a big deal. Anyone listening who's ever raised institutional capital knows this is not an easy thing to do. And, and we were down to the one yard line on this transaction to get this done. And I don't know if my business model just got blown up by the government or not. So I spent all day calling uh, franchise attorneys and CEOs of our brands that we worked with and everybody else who knew anything about it. Their guidance was very straightforward. They said, nothing's happened yet. This isn't law. It's going to be business as usual for a while. The government moves slowly. The next presidential election is really going to matter. And yes, you're still in business. And our customers said, yeah, we're not going to do anything any differently. We're going to watch this, but we're still working together. So I called our investor back and I said, I think we're good. And he said, great, and closed the deal. But that was a long 24 to 48 hours from yeah, now. That sounds like it. Well, let's go ahead. It's kind of a good transition that you aren't actually a lawyer. So could you tell us where you went to college, how you got to where you are today and starting Hireology? I went to the University of Illinois and uh, graduated in 1998, and I was going to teach high school history. That's what I went to school to do. That's what my mom did. I'm a history junkie. I like teaching. I like storytelling. I like standing up in front of people and waving my arms and talking. You're the perfect guest. <laughs> and I really, really, well, I appreciate that. I really like teaching and I love history. And that's what I wanted to do. And maybe someday I will do. But the problem was there were any teaching jobs. A buddy of mine that I went to school with had graduated a year before me and had, was really enjoying this gig he had at this IT staffing company which had been started by a guy named Steve Bashotti, who now owns the Baltimore Ravens in, in half of Baltimore, right? And so at this point, it was about a $100 million business unit within Steve Bashotti's growing staffing empire. I took the job as a placeholder while I applied for teaching jobs, but I loved it. I absolutely loved the business. I loved recruiting and hiring. I loved the tech. 
This was in the middle of the first dot-com cycle, so it was tech everything all the time, you know, the kind of the first time through. And Y2K, for anyone that remembers that, where the work was supposed to end. And it was a big deal. It was crazy, and I loved it. So I spent two years learning, recruiting, and hiring. And then I had an opportunity to go work for a company that was a startup in Chicago called Click Commerce. And Click Commerce sold some of the first internet portal technology to dealer-based businesses and franchise systems. So instead of having to fax orders across a phone line, which is the way the world worked in 1998, we would go in and install literally servers on site with software and hook it up to, to dial up and give these dealers on location a secure login to an internet portal that they could use to transact business with their manufacturer or their franchisor. And before you jump to each, can we just ask one key point that you learned in, at every job? Because I think that's important for you to discuss along the way. In the staffing industry, what I learned was recruiting is a sales job. It is not an administrative function. And so many companies treat recruiting like an administrative function. It's paperwork processing. I apply for the job. My resume goes to the inbox. It gets reviewed. Beauty gets pushed to the next step. It gets pushed to the next step. Sometimes I hear back. Sometimes I don't hear back. And it's run by the HR organization, which is also responsible for benefits and compensation and reviews and sexual harassment policy and all the other stuff. But recruiting is a selling job. You have to get somebody who is a high performer, stable in their current job, probably really happy doing what they're doing, and then convincing them to quit to come work for another opportunity. And that requires a huge transfer of trust. And that is all sales is really at the end of the day is a transfer of trust. I've learned how to have conversations with people about what they were really looking for and how certain jobs might provide that better than the one they're in. And it's really enjoyed it. Recruiting as a selling process really mattered because it's, it's really impacted how we deliver our software solution today. And that was my big takeaway from the staffing industry. I belong to this international organization and you get once a month meeting, we all get together. And I've gotten frustrated because I go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything. And we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month and it's hard to justify, you know? Uh, honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings. <laughs> And then in the click commerce, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just wanted to make sure before we get too far down the rabbit hole, what you're learning there. Well, click commerce, you know, I came in as employee 60 or 70. The company eventually went public. I think we were one of the last to go before the first dot com bust. Actually, in April 2000 is usually when people call it click commerce went public in June or July of 2000. So I think we were literally the last out of the gate. We had a successful IPO and we're growing the business pretty rapidly. The thing that I saw as the head of professional services for Click Commerce was that our dealers every three or four months would call into our program managers and say, I need you to come retrain because our staff is all new. And I saw this massive turnover problem in these dealer networks and franchise brands. And I thought, well, okay, I know how to do recruiting. I see how that has worked. I spent two years doing that. Now I'm all of this experience implementing at hundreds of global manufacturer dealer networks and these franchise brands. And I see this turnover issue. Maybe there's a solution here. After about five years, I had the opportunity to exit Click Commerce, and I did that. And I took the proceeds from that success at Click and I used it to start my first company, which was an outsourced recruitment provider. And we did what is now commonly referred to as recruitment process outsourcing. But in effect, what we would do is tell companies that we would be their internal recruiting department. 
So if you had lots of locations and were not very good at recruitment, you could hire us to come in and do that for you across your network. ClickCommerce, I learned these companies were really bad at it. At Aluma, which was the name originally called PeopleFind, which may be the most unoriginal name I could have thought of, we came up with a solution that helped scale recruiting across a distributed network. Well, the big learning there was our customers sucked at interviewing. They're terrible at it. They had no process. They were all independently owned and operated, so there was no consistency. So inevitably, I would get this call from the CFO of the system or the company and call me and he'd say, Adam, this isn't working. And I would say, what are you talking about? This is working great. The problem is your managers suck at hiring people. They're terrible at it. We just scaled up your mess. We're doing fine. So we had, of course, that's not a great position to take with your customer. Right, yeah. How did they take that? Right, like it's like fine, but it's still not working, so you're fired. I saw this problem repeat itself over and over again. And so I thought, well, we've got to do this differently. I built a series of interview guides and scorecards that we gave RPO customers to use. And we would say, look, I'll sign your service level agreement and I'll adhere to these milestones, but your managers need to use our hiring system or else we're not going to sign the, the SLA. And the companies would say, fine, you know, we don't have a process anyway, so let's give it a shot. Well, customers had so much success with it, they started asking me if they could buy the system. And I said, no, of course not. This is what makes us special. So a couple of years later, the there was... What's SLA, just so we're on the same I'm sorry, a, a service level agreement. Okay. When you work with a large organization, they make you sign up for certain metrics that you're going to hit. And in the recruitment industry, that's most often time to fill. What that means is if I open the job day one, I have an SLA for time to fill at 45 days. If I'm not filling your jobs in 45 days or better, I take a penalty or I don't get paid at all. And yeah, before you keep going on as well, was it scary for you to say, hey, unless y'all do this system, I'm not going to, we're not going to work together because then you're putting your revenues on the line, it seems like. And did you end up charging more? Like, how did you have the confidence to say that? It was less about confidence and more about a panic situation because what would happen was a customer's if they didn't use our process, our service wasn't connecting to value and we'd get fired anyway. So I would staff up for a customer that would fire me in four months. So I thought, well, shit, that's not going to work. I would rather vet it up front and not take the customer. And that, okay, so another lesson learned, be very selective about who you do business with. Not every customer that wants to pay you is a good customer you should work with. What I would find is that if customers really push back on wanting to follow process, they were probably going to be a customer that would be a real pain in the ass to work with. I say that facetiously. I mean, we want to deliver value to our customers. It requires work on both sides. And if they weren't willing to do the work, then they just weren't going to get the value for their money. And so I would rather them not spend their money with us. So I don't feel like it was a risk. It was necessary as part of our model. And I wouldn't even say it has to be facetiously. It's no matter what job you're in, you only have so much time. And it's almost always those customers that you're on the fence about where you're getting questions over and over and over in the beginning, right? That you can tell it's probably not going to fit, but you keep them on just because, you know, you're scared that, hey, I need that revenue, whatever. But when you just start taking in how much time you're spending on those people and you're probably not going to end up helping them as much anyways, it ends up definitely not being worth it. Absolutely. And the more I realize it through that experience, the big takeaway for me was customer selection is really, really critical. And that was a bootstrapped business. I wasn't funded. I didn't have the luxury of operating at a loss for any period of time. There were these moments where it's like someone would ask us to do something that was a little screwball off of our business model. But 
it was going to be a $25,000 a month deal. And I had some customers coming off contract and I thought, well, I need the revenue. Every time I said yes to one of those deals, it hurt us more than it helped us because inevitably down the road a month later comes the perfect deal. Now I can't take it because I'm allocated to this deal. I didn't need to take in the first place. You would sell your process to them? We would not sell it. We would say, look, you've got to be a service customer and then you get it embedded in the offering. It's what makes this unique. Thank you very much. Well, then the recession hit in 2007 and 2008. It's not an overstatement to say it absolutely decimated most recruitment service providers, our company included. I mean, we lost 70% of our revenue in 90 days. It completely flipped the value proposition. And so the world of recruitment service went from it's really hard to find people to I have 500 people applying for every job. I need help processing it. You know, you talk about low points in an entrepreneurial journey. I mean, my business went, it, went, it just it went away. I mean, we took a torpedo that was irrecoverable. And I spent the next two years trying to work out from under that because I refused to declare bankruptcy, refused to quit. And I don't know why. It probably would have been a lot easier. I think it was more of a pride thing than anything else. Looking back on it, I probably could save myself two years by just wrapping it up and not being able to have a credit card for seven years. But I didn't do that. I worked it out. Yeah, before we talk about working out, I think it's really important if you don't mind. Can we like dive into this a little bit more? Sure. What can I tell you? Tell us what that feeling's like when, you know, personally, was it affecting you when you take 70%? Did you hire a lot of staffing people? Walk us through those, I guess, maybe three or six months of when it took such a dip, what it was like then. Yeah, well, I mean, anyone that was around in 2007, 2008, knows how abruptly the world stopped. It was like someone yanked the emergency brake on the global economy and people literally just stopped transacting business. It was unbelievable. And it happened in a week. There was a week where the stock market was down 600 points a day, multiple days in a row. And then everything exploded. Lehman Brothers went out of business and the world just stopped working. And it happened in October, if you remember, before the presidential election, before Obama got elected the first term. And it just, the timing sucked because October is when all companies set their budgets, at least enterprise customers. So you get all of the U.S. economy setting their budgets in the worst recession since the Great Depression. And basically what came out of that was we don't know what's going to happen. We're not spending a dollar on anything. We're not hiring anybody. So if you're in the recruitment business, forget it. You're dead. I had 35 employees at the time. I had just two months earlier finished buying out both of my business partners at the top of the cycle, right? And I okay, that's now worth zero. Great. And I still have to figure out how to do right by these guys. And the way that our business was funded was that we had a line of credit with the bank based on receivables, which is fairly common. In a service-based business, the bank would advance us 80% of our accounts receivable amount every month. And as long as those receivables were less than 90 days old or aged, life was fine. And then we would get the invoice, we would pay off the 80% advance, the 20% was the profit margin. And that's how we ran the business for five years. And it worked fine. It worked great for us. A couple things started happening. First of all, all of our customers either went out of business or canceled contracts. What can you do? You know, you're not taking your customers to court. And the second thing is they stopped paying us. Not only did we lose 70% of our revenue in 90 days, but I had a million dollars of accounts receivable that pushed out past 90 days. So I was running a $300,000 a month payroll, 
personally guaranteed on this line of credit that now was more than three months aged. So now I'm on the hook personally for a million dollars. There's no revenue in the company and the bank calls the loan. I learned a lot about the way bank loans work. And there was a clause in there that said, basically, we have the right to call this loan for any reason, any time to get a summary judgment in court and not even notify you that we're doing it. And that's in effect what happened. One morning, I'll never forget it. I'm standing in the kitchen. It's about 6.30 in the morning. I've got my cup of coffee. I'm getting ready to go into the office. And I get this phone call from our payroll company that said, your payroll just bounced. I said, what are you talking about? And I log into the bank and sure enough, there's a $0 balance. And I call uh, my contact at the bank when it opens. You know, Two hours later, I'm sweating this. And the guy says, I'm sorry, I'm not your point of contact anymore. You've been moved to a different group. And I thought, oh shit, that's not good. I get transferred to this new person who I would say is really effective at playing bad cop. I mean, if there was a good cop, bad (laughs) cop situation, like this was textbook definition, bad cop. And she basically said, well, sir, I'm sorry you've fallen below our loan threshold. We've we've decided that we're going to call the loan. We've swept your account balance. And I said, well, we've never missed a single payment. I was operating the business fine. I can still cover interest for good. Like I'm working this out. Give me a chance to fix this. She said, I'm sorry. And what I came to learn was that in that environment, banks were hemorrhaging losses on their loan portfolios. And they all just wanted to take one big massive write-off and call it a day. Like just eat a shit sandwich in the fourth quarter of 2007 and just call it a day because investors knew that the world was bad then. So that's what they did. So I fell below some line. It didn't matter. They just shut it all down. So now I've got a company with customers, but I can't process payments. My account balance has just been swept. I owe the bank a million dollars and I got to still run this company. I run down the street to another bank, take all the money I have left in the world and open up a checking account, wire it to the payroll company to pay people and then start calling customers and telling them, Dave, you got to pay me. And I basically became the world's best collection agency for the next three weeks and collected about half of the million dollars. That wasn't exactly fun. I got to the point where I was, I basically had a a half million dollar debt I owed that was being called. I had a business that wasn't a $6 million a year business anymore. It was a $1 million a year business. And I had to walk into the company and I had to gather people around. And it was now, you know, holiday season. And I basically said, hey guys, this is what happened. I love each and every one of you. I appreciate all that you've done. As you know, things have just gotten real in the economy and we've been hit pretty hard. So if you're here with me in this room, unfortunately, this is your last day and I can't pay severance. And I know this sucks and I'm sorry, but pack it up. How many people were in the room? Probably 25 people out of the 33. So I was able to keep five or six folks. And then I said to the other six people, I said, look, here's the deal. You guys should start looking for work but I need you. Okay. And then, so that five or six over the next 12 months eventually went down to me and two other people. I just sat there and grinded for a year to triage the business and to come up with a business model that worked. And I was starting to make some progress. Before you talk about the new business model, are you just becoming your single recruiter? Were you backtracking to that? Doing it all. Yes. Do you have wife or kids or anything, or is just single at this point? At that point, I was still single in that year. I got married in September of 2008. 
this was that period of time. I was engaged and in, in thinking, oh, okay, this is interesting. But I guess at the at the end of the day, I wasn't, you know, I'm not really worried about it. I mean, what's going to happen? I'm not going to die. The worst thing that happens is I declare bankruptcy and I and I go do something else. But you know, I just I wasn't I just wasn't going to do that. So I just got really laser focused on fixing it. And you know, when I started to make some progress, revenues rebounded, and we were, you know was growing up basically starting over, but I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and a business friend of mine kind of intervened at a lunch that we were at. And he's like, how's it going? And I said, going fine. He said, bullshit, you look terrible. And I said, okay. He goes, tell me what's going on right now. And, you know, cause I'm always the positive outgoing, everything's cool on the exterior guy. And as most entrepreneurs are, frankly, even in terrible moments, I kind of came clean on what was going on. And he said, I want you to make me one promise. I want you to look out six months. I want you to draw a line in the sand. I want you to set a number that's aggressive, but realistic and do yourself a favor. If you can't hit that number, quit because you're going to spend the next five years of your life trying to fix a company that's not fixable when you could be applying yourself to some much bigger opportunity. And I will never forget, it's the best advice anyone's ever given me in business. And I did that. I set through a line. I set the threshold. We busted our ass and we didn't hit it. And I quit. I said, enough is enough. I can't do this. I made the decision to take the existing book of business that I had and try my best to get another company to buy that from me. I was able to find a, a staffing company that wanted the book of business and also wanted to employ me because, of course, at that point, there was no income. I took the entire book and went to work for a large national staffing company with that book, which they provided some value to me for. I was there for a year, basically integrating the remains of my old business into their staffing operation. And about that time, we find out that we're pregnant with our first child and things have looked better, you know, financially for me than they did at that point. And I just thought, okay, I've got, I've got a marriage, I've got a child on the way. For the first time in a long time, I'm back to the salary and stable income. This is great. Okay, good. What's the natural next step for me now that things are stabilized and I'm working this out? Of course, I decide to quit that job and start another business because I see this opportunity that I was never able to take advantage of in the last company. So of course, with a child on the way in a month, um, and really no real prospect for success, taking a lot of risk. I quit the stable job that after I had was out for my one-year contract on the 366th day, I said, I can't do this. It was crazy. I'm not cut out for this. And I started the next company, which was a company that sold interview guides on the internet through AdWords. That was the business. And what year was this? This was 2009. And I'd actually been poking around with this even before I'd gotten married and kind of playing around with these interview guides that I had created. I had this idea that you know, our customers needed these interview guides. They always asking me for interview questions. You know, after the, the business had gone away and I was playing around trying to figure out what I was doing next, I created this series of interview guides. And what I would do, I started a blog. The blog was called Better Hiring Today. I would write about things like five interview questions to use on a telephone screen. And then I'd have a call to action at the bottom of the blog. You know, this is early 2008 where you could actually pull this off. The world's more complicated now online, but a call to action at the bottom, need an interview guide, click here. I set up an Intuit home site product catalog. I would upload the PDF form. I charged $24.99 for the telephone screen. I hooked it up to an Intuit merchant account. 
And I ran an AdWords campaign, companion with each blog post. And in like three months, I sold something like $10,000, $12,000 worth of downloadable PDFs for phone screens to some of the largest companies in the world. And what I saw was managers would panic. They had an interview coming in and they would go, oh my God, I have no idea what to ask somebody. They'd Google questions to ask in a programmer interview. And my blog post would pop up and they would buy the guide because they were scared. They used their own money to do it. That kept happening over and over. And I thought, wow, there's a business here. I had this forms business that was doing really, really well. Well enough, in fact, that I felt like I could quit this job. I would take a, a massive cut and do all the things that you do when you start a business. But I thought, okay, there's a real opportunity here. So I decided to start this interview guides company, hiring guides company, and it was called Ionics. And so I named it the Ionics Hiring System. And I would write about recruiting and hiring. And I had these forms that I built and would sell and this whole downloadable package. And I did that for about six months. I realized that the real future of that business was to make it all software as a service. This is the birth of SaaS at scale for small business. Heroku as a hosting platform was just becoming available. Amazon Web Services was becoming available. You didn't have to buy all of the hardware to start a website. All the things we take for granted now was just starting to come into their own. I mean, the iPhone was just released and this was 2008 was kind of a different world. Decided to do that. I was telling a couple of friends of mine that we were both in a business organization. I was telling them, hey, I've got this hiring forms company that's doing well. I think I'm going to turn into a SaaS business. And they said, you know what? That's really interesting. We've got this service business that we're creating custom data-driven interview guides for corporations that want to be really good at picking the right person. Why don't we combine forces? And I'd known these guys for five or six years. And I said, that's a great idea. You guys help me fund it, I'll run it. That's how Michael Krasman and Jeff Elman and I started Hireology. I took this forms business that I had been working, I contributed all the IP and became the CEO of this new company. They contributed a couple of staff members and about a quarter of a million dollars of capital to get it off the ground and gave me some space in the back of their real estate office that I could sit in and start this company. And that's how Hireology started. I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guest that you interview resonates a lot more. Uh, you know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai? Yeah, so it's the capital of the UAE. He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. No, no, just talking to you has uh, helped, uh, helped get my thinking going. Do you think part of the reason you wanted to sell those forms online is, I guess, before you were basically selling your time for money when you're recruiting versus doing something that was maybe a little bit more passive or where you weren't hustling left and right to try to call people to get them into new jobs? Well, that's exactly right. I told somebody I did not want to run a service business ever again in my life. I think we all get burned out doing that. I have a service business and I feel you on that. And it's not that they're bad businesses. It's just, I, did, I don't want to sell my time. I learned that lesson the first 15 years of my career. You know, when you're selling your time, you have a finite amount of it. And once you've sold it, you're done. And the only way to grow your earnings is to hire more people who also sell their time. And you reach a point where you chase utilization rates, where there's just only so much time the market wants from you, which is why 
you don't see too many large consulting companies. There just aren't that many of them because there's a scale issue. But if you build a product with zero marginal cost every time you sell it, you can build it once and sell it to infinity. The difference is you generally have to dig a hole and fill it with money for three or four years before you see any earnings when you're starting a product or software business. That is why I needed partners and that's why we've raised capital. But a product business, particularly software or software as a service, is infinitely scalable and a much better way to spend my time. So if I'm going to choose between busting my ass to build a service business or busting my ass to build a software company, the return on my time as an entrepreneur is much better building the product business. No, I think that's an important point. And in closing, are there any other points that you want to leave our entrepreneurs with as far as lessons you wish you knew before you started your businesses? You, you know, I guess the customer concentration, watch it. It killed my first company. 70% of my business was concentrated in five or six companies. And I decided there was no way I was going to start another business where I had customer concentration. That's why Hierology serves 4,000 customers none of whom are more than a half a percent of our total revenue, even you know, our largest customer. I never wanted to chase receivables again. I never wanted to live through that again. That's why 90% of Hierology customers pay with a credit card a year in advance. I never wanted to have to ever go through that again. That's why I'm in the software business, because I don't ever want to have to chase utilization ever again. And then the other lesson learned is just understanding what your time is worth. I'm always looking to get the maximum leverage on my time investment in whatever I'm doing. And that's led to me this year turning over daily operations to a much better operating leader than I am. So I can stay out in the market and grow this business and she can be great at what she's great at, uh, which is running the company day to day. And that's increased our scalability and helped me lever my time. Well, thank you, Adam, for joining us. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Sure. You can, uh, my own personal website is www.thebestteamwins.com. I've recently published a book on things I've learned in, in recruiting and hiring. It's available uh, there. I blog there. All my contact information is there. Be happy to uh, chat with anyone who reaches out. All right. Well, wonderful. I said, we'll throw that in the show notes. So thank you again for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes where we talk about how to service your customer. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Not to be confused with two girls in a cup. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now. And if you have any questions about the membership, feel free to message me on Pornhub. My username is bizboy69. That's B-I-Z-B-O-I. Six, nine. And as long as you're a Patreon member, I promise to respond to all your messages instantly. So become a member today.